Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to be amongst us now, to be in us now, Lord, that he would cut through the confusion of our lives, Lord, to see the unchanging and steadfast truth of your Son as revealed in the pages of Scripture. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today we're going to be looking at um, the parable in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And as I was doing my due diligence in studying for this uh, sermon, I came across a quote from a, uh, a commentator and a pastor. And he said, by his estimation, that this parable here that we're about to go over is the most difficult parable to understand in all of Scripture. <laughs> Not only that, he said it's probably the most misunderstood and um, the one parable that has the most uh, different interpretations of any parable that Jesus spoke. So I said, why not? <laughs> Let's give it a shot. You know, the truth is, we can approach this parable not knowing that it's difficult, but not with any fear or hesitation in our heart, because we know the heart of God, right? We know that Jesus came to this earth not so that he would be hidden from the earth, but so that he would be revealed to the people of the world. He came so that we could know him. And we have scripture so that we could know more and more about him. So we don't approach this passage, even though it has a reputation, we don't approach it in fear. We approach it in thanksgiving that, that God would do what he said he would do and remain faithful, and that he would open our eyes to understand what it says. And we see that in, in our reading from Timothy in verse 4, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, friends, that's what we have before us. Sometimes we just have to do a little bit of more work, ask a few more questions. And so that's our plan for today. If you want to open your Bibles, we are in Luke chapter 16. Um, the passage is also in your bulletin out, um, insert. And by my estimation, it's not the parable itself that's all that difficult. It's a story that we probably understand in one form or another, either having to fire someone or having been fired ourselves. It's really the application, the conclusion of the parable and the application of the parable in verses 8 and 9. So that's going to be the focus of our time today in verses 8 and 9 and understanding what it is exactly that Jesus commends and what exactly it is that he asks of his disciples. But to do that, we do have to understand the story. So first, we notice Jesus is speaking in, in verse 1 to the disciples. His audience has been narrowed. He's not just speaking to the crowd as he was in chapter 15. But now, specifically, these are insiders that he's talking to. These are people who have been walking with him, who, who know him, who know who he says he is and are following him and believe him to be that person. And so he's speaking to the disciples when he gives them this parable. Now, in this story, there's a rich man, and the rich man hears that he has a manager who is being wasteful in his management, and so he calls that manager to account, and he says, I hear that you were wasting my possessions that you've been put in charge of, and so I need you to give over your account. You're being fired. Now, this manager likes what he does. We, we, we know that from the passage when he says, well, I don't want to go and dig. 
and I don't want to be a beggar. I want, to, I want to keep doing what I've been doing. And so he has to think quickly. He's got to think on his feet. He's in the, in the process of being fired. He's, he's going to his desk. He's collecting all of his possessions, right? He's turning over to the company, what belongs to the company, and he's walking out the door, and he's thinking, I have an opportunity here, but the door is closing quick. What do I need to do to land on my feet? Where do I need to spend my time, my energy, my effort? I have a moment. What am I going to do with it? And so that is the story. And we find out his plan in verse 4. He says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Well, what's his plan? We read about it in the following verses. This guy decides that he's going to go to the debtors of the rich man. We've probably heard the adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, he's using that logic. And he goes to the debtors of the rich man, and he says, let me see your bill. How much do you owe? Quick, quick, let's rewrite that. How about a nice little discount? Before I go and turn this in to the rich man, how about I give you just a nice little discount off the top? The implication here is that he's doing them a favor in hopes that, you know, if he were to be fired in the near future, he could knock on their door and say, hey, you remember that time I gave you a nice discount? Any chance you have a favor in return for me? Do you have a place for employment in your household? Do you need a, a manager of your estate? So he's doing them a favor here in his last moment as manager of this rich man's estate in the hopes that, he will then, that they will be indebted to him and that he will have an opportunity in the future to call in a favor as well so that he will have an opportunity to work in the field in which he wants to work. Now this is where it gets a little bit confusing, right? In verse 8, so far things make sense. This manager is acting shrewdly and it's quite clever, this plan that he came up with. But then we get to verse 8, and Jesus says that the master, the rich man, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, I imagine that's not the conclusion to the story that we would expect, right? This rich man has just been had. He's, he's just been um, taken for some of what he is owed. But we recognize along with the rich man, that this manager is quite clever. That he really is quite shrewd in coming up with this plan on the fly. Getting into the good graces of a future employer even as he's being fired. So in a lot of ways, we see in this rich man, this is game recognizing game. This is one businessman who understands how the business world works, who understands the importance of favors and being in the good graces of certain people recognizing that even though he's been had in this exact instance, he can appreciate the work that the manager did, the shrewdness that he displayed, the resourcefulness, the cleverness. He can appreciate, even though it's at his own expense, what the manager did. And so that is the conclusion to the story. The master commends not the dishonesty that the, man, that the manager showed, but that he commends the shrewdness of the manager. Then things get a little bit more confusing because Jesus breaks into the story and he makes a comment directed at his disciples. 
And it's a comment that feels like a sharp critique of his disciples. He says in the second half of verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's saying the sons of this world, those who have no appreciation for the eternal, those who are focused on the here and the now and, and making a dollar and taking care of themselves in this moment, they don't know, they don't care about the spiritual reality. Those people, the sons of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. They're more quick on their feet. They're better at getting what they want than the sons of light, than the disciples, than the God followers, those who do know, those who do care about spiritual matters, which are even more important than temporal things and worldly goods. Think about that for a moment. Is that true in your experience? I can tell you when, when, when that hit me, I found it to be stunningly accurate. There's a field of analytics, uh, which I found out about. The whole field is, is devoted to finding out where the big box retail stores and the chain restaurants can generate the most profit if they were to place their next store. So they gather up all this information about us that's out there, whether we want it to be or not. It's out there, our demographics information, our, our income information, age, race, where we've lived. And they put all this information together. And they're able to not just lay out the facts, but they can actually put together a profile of a neighborhood. They can discern, based on averages, a, a mood and, and the desires of the people who would live in a certain place and at a certain time. So the way it would look, essentially, is they would say, OK, in this neighborhood that's downtown, that's up and coming, the majority of people are older. They're, they're baby boomers. They've been divorced. They've done the suburban thing already. They've had the picket fence in the yard and the, the, aunt, the dog. But now they've moved on to a different stage of life. And they are um, seeking uh, to a more urban lifestyle. They're seeking um, not for um, the goods of their family, but for themselves in this moment as they are, are in this new stage of life. And so based on all this information, they really want Wendy's right here on this corner. Or so it goes. How amazing would it be if we were that intentional about our own neighborhoods? If we as a church was that intentional about where our next congregation would be located? If we were that intentional about where we placed our own homes, about the neighborhoods that we wanted to be in? If we had that much intentionality about the relationships that, we're, that God brings to us as we go about our days, day in and day out. Think about the difference that that could make in the world if the intentionality that we apply to our work is then applied to things that are even more important, to the eternal truths and to the eternal world. Jesus lays out this plan for his disciples in verse 9. He says, And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Again, this is a difficult verse for us to understand, but notice that it does parallel verse 4. It parallels the plan of the dishonest manager, not in his dishonesty, but in its shrewdness, in its resourcefulness. 
See, Jesus is telling his disciples, use everything at your disposal for the benefit of the kingdom, for the eternal lives of those who you are in relationship with. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying that if you are clever and resourceful enough that you can earn your way into heaven. We know that that's not true. We know that from scripture. You've heard it preached from this pulpit, that, that there is work to be done, but it's not work that we can do on our behalf. Right? We find ourselves in the pit, and when we look up, there is no hope for us in our own lives and in our own ability to crawl out. And yet that is the profound and simple beauty of the gospel, that God would see that too, and that God would send his son Jesus to pull us out when we couldn't pull ourselves out. There's a work to be done, and it comes at great cost, and Jesus bears that cost himself, and he does that work himself. So this isn't Jesus telling us that there's a work that we need to do to earn our salvation. Instead, what he's saying here is that if we put our belief in Christ, if we put our trust in him, if we acknowledge that we can't contribute anything to our own salvation, that we also see that when we are given that life, that we are given a hope and a joy and a peace and a comfort that far surpasses anything that we could muster on our own. And that its value far surpasses any value of anything that we could hope to earn on our own. And then it's because of our salvation, and it is from our salvation, it's because we've been adopted into the family of God that we do have much to contribute to this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which we're going through Ephesians in our Sunday school, and we'll be going through this verse next week. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, friends, there is a good work that is to be done, but is not for our salvation. It's not to earn our standing in the kingdom of God, but it is because we have been given a standing in the kingdom of God that we contribute everything we possibly have to give to those we come in contact with every day, to the world in which we live. We seek to employ the worldly goods for the benefit of eternal truths. We know that what's in this world will dry up. We know that it will run out. Our looks will fade. Our money will cease. We know these things to be true, and yet we use them, and we direct them towards the kingdom purposes, towards the eternal realm, towards the benefit of our neighbors and our families. And we do so with the expectation that when they are all dried up and when they've all run out and we have nothing left to give, we can look up into heaven, as Jesus says in verse 9, that we can look up and see them, those folks, those people who we care so much about, who we devoted our lives to helping. We see them looking down on us and welcoming us into the eternal realm, welcoming us into heaven itself. That's, friends, my prayer for us today that we would recognize the truth that Jesus has for us, that we are called to use everything at our disposal in our service to him and to his kingdom. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.